Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. We're going to be continuing with our look at uh, Jason Baldwin's lack of an alibi. You know, the episode last week looked at some early aspects of that and uh, particularly his complaints about the way he was, it was represented in court or not represented in court, etc. Uh, we're going to get into more of the specifics and, and to a certain extent his, the failure of him to corroborate his, his, his supposed alibi with the phone call girls being Holly George, Jennifer Bearden, to a lesser extent, Heather Clyatt, and to a much lesser extent, Dominique Tier. But he did claim he talked to all four of those, those girls that evening. Uh, Damien Eccles made the same sort of claim. Damien at least actually did talk to most of them sometime that evening. That was after he committed the murders. Jason didn't talk to them at all. Um... Uh, but he claims he did. And, uh, you know, to some extent, what you, you may get a feel for my methodology in writing this book that I'm quoting from, Where the Monsters Go. It's one of three books I've written on the case, which is essentially a two-volume set, uh, Blood on Black being the first volume, Where the Monsters Go being the second volume. I'm moving along through uh, the second volume. I'm up to episode 65, and I don't know how many episodes I have left, but I, we've covered probably at least two-thirds of the case, probably more. Um, and the other book is The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. They're all available on Amazon in print and Kindle format. Uh, this case involves uh, the murders of Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, and Stevie Branch on May 5th, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. <coughs> it's best known for uh, being featured, the case has been featured in four documentaries, film doc, feature film documentaries, and it's also been featured in some television specials even fairly recently. Uh, the three Paradise Lost movies from HBO and uh, West of Memphis, which was among the producers, was actually one of the killers. So you can just imagine how credible that particular uh, documentary is. Um, and the three men convicted in 1994 who ultimately pleaded guilty and were let out for time served in 2011 were Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. We're, and we're gonna be, we've already covered the failure of uh, Miskelly's and Eccles' alibis, and now we're going to get into uh, the problems with uh, Baldwin's supposed alibi. And I, as I was gonna say about the methodology is, you know, uh, if I were writing a a, 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 like a 12-inch news story about, about this, I would, it would probably boil it down to uh, 
uh, with Baldwin, I could probably boil it down to he had no, Baldwin claimed he had an alibi, but there were no uh, confirmed and corroborated uh, witnesses to that effect. So I'd put something like that in there, maybe even worded a little better. But the point being is there's a bottom line with this, which he doesn't have an alibi. But I am going to demonstrate why he doesn't have an alibi by actually going through everybody who had some kind of contact with him and was interviewed by police or testified or otherwise presented material to see what they had to say about their contacts with Jason Baldwin that day. And uh, we're going to find that, uh, as I say, that uh, he doesn't really have anything like an alibi from, depending on when he got through cutting grass, his uncle claims it was as late as 6.30, which is not very credible on several counts, including it shouldn't have taken him that long to cut the grass. And his uncle, his uncle, you know, uh, how I mean I don't know how credible it actually it actually his uncle would actually be he didn't testify at trial, uh, but from the time from uh, say six thirty at the very latest, and again I I'm not saying that's a particularly credible alibi till at least nine nine thirty when he was found again at home he only has. One, he doesn't really have a, a, an alibi witness. His brother Matt says he was at home, and his, his friend Ken Watkins has a story about uh, his interactions with uh, Jason during that time. But Ken Watkins' story is totally uncorroborated, and uh, Matt Baldwin's story doesn't, isn't in accord with uh, the only adult who was at the house, Dink Dent. So, uh, and he, he was, you know, a young boy, 10 or 11 years old, I think at the time. And, uh, it is his brother. I'm sure he was loyal to, I'm not faulting anybody for being loyal to their brother, but anyway, um, we're going to get into it. Uh, I'm not going to be able to finish all of Jason's alibi today. And we're going to talk a little bit about what went on during the during the day prior up prior to uh, the trip over to Robin Hood Hills where the killings occurred, and uh, with uh, starting off with what Dominique Tear, who was Damien Eccles' pregnant girlfriend, who also lived in Lakeshore state's trailer park the same trailer park that Baldwin lived in she lived right down the street from him we're going to start off with she told investigators and Dominique told them that she Eccles and Ken Watkins who was another friend had planned on Baldwin skipping school that day so they could hang out together but uh, Baldwin had gone to school anyway and Baldwin was on juvenile probation and he he was reluctant to play hooky because he would get in trouble for that. Dominique said Baldwin came over to her house about 335 and then they went back to Baldwin's home 
He called his mother, she said, and his mother told him that he would have to go cut his uncle's lawn, which had not been a part of their original plan. She said they walked over there, watched Baldwin cut the grass for a while, and then left about 5 or 5.30. She did not mention seeing him later that day. Uh, Dominique's mother, Diane Tear, said Baldwin had come over to her trailer after school for about 15 or 20 minutes. And Assistant Prosecutor John Fogelman asked her, what happened after 15 or 20 minutes? Diane Tear said, uh, Jason had to cut his uncle's lawn, so they went over there. In Dominique's version, Baldwin found out about the lawn cutting after they went to his trailer. She did not mention returning home. In Diane's version, the group left after 15 or 20 minutes because he had to cut the lawn. A discrepancy in stories there. Not such a big deal, but it just goes to show that the stories tend not to be very consistent. And this does happen in what people tell police anyway. Not to make too big a deal out of it. But it doesn't help his case any. Heather Quiet, who's his girlfriend, attempted to call Baldwin at about 4.40 or 5 p.m., according to an undated statement in 1993. She could not get an answer. The 14-year-old let the phone ring seven or eight times. She just wanted to talk. By most accounts, including his own, neither Jason nor anyone else was at home. Heather gave a similar account on June 7th, 1993, which would have been four days after her boyfriend was arrested, in which she said that Jason had been her boyfriend for about a month. She said that on May 5th, she called the ball at home at 4.30 or 5 and got no answer, and that when she called again at 5.30 or 6, the phone was busy and she did not try to call again that night. She said that on May 7th, she saw Baldwin at the skating rink with Eccles and Miskelly and just said hi to him. So, according to this, she didn't talk to him at all on May 5th. That Saturday, she called him around 11 a.m., and he explained that he had been cutting his uncle's yard on Wednesday. She gave another handwritten statement. Another statement, this one was handwritten on June 8th, the next day, repeating essentially the same points. She said again that she tried to call him around 4.30 or 5, got no answer, tried again around 6.15, and the line was busy. And according to this statement, Baldwin again told her that he was cutting his uncle's yard on May 5th. She, ne- she said Baldwin never discussed the murders with her, or mentioned anything about the killings. And Rich's notes on a subsequent interview on September 7th repeated the, many of the same points. And you can see if I re- had really wanted to be tedious, I could have quoted more extensively the same points over and over. I chose not to do that because she does. she's pretty consistent in these stories about what went on there. And none of her statements offer any help to Jason Baldwin in in terms of an alibi. In fact, they work against him. And an affidavit filed on April 24, 2008, a grown and married Heather Dawn Hollis, being the former client, repeated much of the 
the information but added details. She said she knew Chris Byers and had attended school with Ryan Clark, who was Chris Byers' older brother. She had seen Chris on his bicycle at her, her home on the day the boys were killed. On the afternoon of May 6, which is the day the boys were discovered, nude, bound in a ditch in an area, a wooded area called Robin Hood Hills, she went to the buyer's home and Ryan told her that Christopher had been killed. She said, I was very upset when I heard that news. And she attended the funeral. And yet, she and her boyfriend, Jason Baldwin, supposedly had no discussion about any of that. I mean, she said uh, that she never discussed the murders with Baldwin at all or mentioned anything about the killings to him. Uh, she also knew Damien Eccles and Jesse Miskelly. Quote, Jason was a very sweet boy when I saw him. He was quiet, polite, and kind. Uh, Damien Eccles liked to call attention to himself, but in my view, he would not have intentionally hurt anyone. Jesse Miskelly was generally viewed as being sort of crazy. As far as I knew, Damien and Jason did not hang around with Jesse at the time of the 1993 killings in Robin Hood Hills. And she said this in 2008. In 1993, Heather had told police she saw Eccles, Baldwin, and Miskelly together at the skating rink two days after the murders. So, 2008, they didn't hang out together. To 1993, which is a lot, which is the same year as the crimes. It was just shortly after the crimes were committed, and it was shortly after she would have seen them together. She said she saw Eccles, Ballwood, and Miskelly together at the skating rink on June 7th, 1993. There's video footage showing Eccles and. Uh, Miskelly at the skating rink. Eccles is standing around uh, talking with uh, various people and uh, Miskelly's playing pool. So they weren't interacting at that time, but there's nothing that would have prevented them from interacting earlier or later with each other. Uh, Heather said she and... Uh, Jason's mother, her mother and uh, Jason's mother would drive her and Baldwin over to each other's houses so they could spend time together. Like Eccles, Baldwin had spent time in the immediate neighborhood of his victims. Now, this doesn't mean he was familiar with Robin Hood Hills, and I'm not suggesting that. Though Heather was familiar with Robin Hood Hills, as we'll see. But it does show he was familiar with the area. He may very well have been familiar with uh, the boys themselves since he was in that immediate area. Uh, Heather was a neighbor and a friend of the Byers family. And uh, we know that Damien Eccles, despite some other claims he's made, we know he testified that he walked through the, that area across the pipe bridge, basically through the woods where the boys were killed two or three times a week in the months leading up to the killings. 
Now, while she did not mention a late-night conversation in earlier interviews, in 2008, she claimed she talked to Jason and Damien on May 5th, 6th, until well after midnight in a surreptitious phone call that included a call from Jennifer Bearden. In 2008, she said she had not talked to Holly that night because she didn't like Holly but told a different story to police. She claimed to have told police of her phone calls with Damien and Jason, but she failed to do so. And she admitted that she had said she talked to Holly in 1993, but in 2008 she said, well, I really didn't talk to her, but I just told police that back in 1993. The record of Repeated statements in 1993, including handwritten notes, indicated that she had talked to Holly, that she hadn't talked to Jason, and and she made no mention of a late-night phone call with Damien and Jason. She did mention that she might have talked with to Damien later than... Uh, she and Jennifer may have talked to Jason, uh, uh, Damien later than the 9.30 or so that Jennifer insisted upon, 9.20, 9.30 that, that Jennifer talked about. And Jennifer also, uh, at, at some point, admitted it could, the conversation could have been later, and she said it, you know, that it might have been more like 10 o'clock or, or later, which gives Damien just that much more time to, to get home from the crime scene. It even gives him time to get home from the uh, walking along the side of the road and being spotted by the Hollingsworth family. If client statements from 1993 were true, other than the admitted lie about talking to Holly, not only she did she establish that she was unable to get in touch with Baldwin early that evening, but that Eccles was not telling the truth about talking with girls, including Jennifer and Holly, all that evening. The statement from 2008, if true, gave no alibi for Eccles or Baldwin. Now, Jason has repeatedly claimed he talked to Heather on the phone. Heather repeatedly said in 1993 that Jason did not talk to her on May 5th. Heather Quiet also played other roles in the case, for example, leading West Memphis officer Diane Hester to the crime scene on May 10th after she was taken briefly out of school at East Junior High. They went to the dead end of Goodwin, which is this little nub of a, the, the dead end is a little nub of a street that leads up to the by, 10 mile bayou and and the uh, the pipe bridge that goes across to the wood that went across to the wooded area the wooded area is not there now though it's last I went by last time I went past there and it's been a while it was becoming more wooded she took me to a place that the kids called Devil's Den where she had seen all three victims on several occasions riding their bikes said Hester's note so Jason Baldwin's girlfriend was familiar with the area and she was familiar with the fact that all three of these dead boys routinely rode their bikes through Robin Hood Hills. 
Heather's 2008 affidavit described her great familiarity with the woods, including seeing snapping turtles and feral dogs. And the defense team would use those statements to bolster their more recent claims that Woods wounds to the boys were the result of animal predators. Though it remains manifestly unclear how uh, those wounds would have been produced in such a way as to, as to cause, uh, in particular to cause uh, Christopher Byers' death. He died from multiple causes, but as much as anything, he died from bleeding. He was bled out by the time he was put into the water. And, um, which would mean that, uh, if all these, all of these wounds were caused by animals, they were either caused by snapping turtles, tearing them apart, and then, and then he was thrown into the water, or by feral dogs doing this with Warner Spitz suggesting that perhaps the feral dogs pulled the bodies out of the water, shook them around, banged their heads against trees, chewed them up, and then tossed them back into the water. If you want to believe that, fine. I don't believe it. And I don't care what his reputation... His reputation has been sullied on numerous occasions. He has a lot of expertise. He's also a gun for hire. Baldwin's girlfriend was familiar enough with the scene of the crime to warrant a police officer taking her out of school for a tour. And this was before Jason Baldwin was a suspect. Uh, they were just trying to get some general information from somebody else who knew something about the scene. And so who do they go to? Jason Baldwin's girlfriend. She lived in the neighborhood of the Dead Boys and was friends with the Byers family. And as we've said, Baldwin had been to her home. The grown-up Hyatt further, and this is 2008, further stated that she lived with Ryan Clark, who was Chris's half-brother, for a few years after the trials. Quote, During that time, Ryan and I talked about things that had gone on in Ryan's household including the way that Chris Byers had been beaten from time to time by his father. Now that statement was made when the favorite alternative suspect was Mark Byers, who has always admitted spanking Chris with a belt on the day the boy was killed. Uh, Ryan Clark, based on his recent interview with uh, Bob Ruff, on A&E, on a special there. Uh, he's been estranged from his stepfather at least since the death of his mother, Melissa Byers, from unspecified causes in 1993 in Cherokee Village, Arkansas. And apparently he was never particularly happy with being the stepson of Mark Byers, who has recently died in a car accident, a single car accident. Reports are that he was racing home in a car that wasn't his, that he wasn't authorized to drive to get on his oxygen tank down a hazardous road near uh, 
Millington, Tennessee, and somehow lost control and uh, was killed. <coughs> and another and somewhat curious connection, Heather Clyatt's brother, Donald Wayne Warwick, who was around age 24 then, was questioned in the case. Warwick had a knife held as potential evidence he was interviewed in the Cross County Jail where he was being held on an outstanding warrant from Texas on May 10th, 1993, the same day his sister led a police officer to Devil's Den. Uh, Warwick had been charged with criminal mischief in West Memphis. It was part of a string of self-induced setbacks that he described as bad luck. So, once again, we have somebody else who's um, that is not obviously connected to Jason Baldwin, certainly not directly connected to Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles, <coughs> who's being investigated and treated as a potential suspect. There are many other people that, that fell into this category, always for good reasons. They fell under some degree of suspicion. Sometimes the reasons turned out to many, actually in all the cases, it, it, and ultimately they turned out to me not to be valid except for the, the actual three killers themselves. But, you know, police have to investigate. So they talked to Donald Warwick. Now, Warwick was also highly familiar with the crime side. He said, since I was a little kid, I used to play down in the same spot where they found right down at what they call Robin Hood Hills. And that's why, you know, the police were right. It had to be somebody that's familiar with the town. Because my father, he's been in and out since I was born, and he doesn't know another thing about it. I mean, there's people that just don't know. And that was the professed case with uh, Terry Hobbs and John Mark Byers, they didn't know about this area. Damien Eccles did. Jason Baldwin almost certainly did. Certainly his girlfriend did. Warwick thought he had seen the boys that Wednesday because his sister Heather knew one of them, Chris, adding, I see kids around there all the time. At that early stage of the investigation, police were already asking if he knew Murray Ferris, Chris Luttrell, Damien Eccles, or L.G. Hollingsworth. But Warwick didn't know them or anything about an occultic cult that any like several of these people were involved in. It's unclear whether L.G. was actually involved in a this uh, witchcraft group or not. There doesn't seem to be any indication he was, except he, except in the police investigative notes. Warwick was pretty sure he was at his mother's house that day, but could recall no details, except that he had gone over to his father's house around 7, and he ended up not being considered a suspect. Now, did they investigate him deeply? No, but did they have any reason to think he actually had anything to do with the, do with the, the crime? Mm, you know, they were just checking out some leads. Uh, Chris Luttrell, who was a high school kid, uh, along with Murray Ferris, 
West Memphis who was uh, interested in witchcraft and they had a little witchcraft group. Uh, Kush Rattel told the police that he attended coven meetings at Murray Ferris's house that had been attended by a Don Warwick. And on May 7th, he named Don Warwick as one of the cult's organizers. The name also appeared on an undated note from police investigators along with the names of Luttrell, Murray J. Ferris, and Mikhail, which is an apparent reference to Damien Eccles, who was also known as Michael Hutchison. Now, that particular Don Warwick in, that Luttrell's referring to was identified in Bill, Detective Bill Durham's notes on the interview as a 15-year-old 10th grader at West Memphis High School who lived in Proctor. So, two Don Warwicks, apparently. <laughs> and I don't, I don't see any record that they ever talked to the second Don Warwick. So much for the witch hunt. Um, Heather, like Jennifer and Holly, did not testify in the trials as their statements did not bolster the claims of the defense and offered only circumstantial support for the prosecution. And after all, they were young teenage girls. Besides claims that he talked to Holly and Heather, Ballin claimed that he talked to Eccles and Jennifer Bearden on the phone that evening. In a September 10th statement, Jennifer Bearden said that on instructions from Eccles earlier on May 5th, she called the Baldwin home somewhere, quote, somewhere in a, between 4.15 and 5, something like 5, 5.30. Not real exact on the times, but it's not that crucial because none of those offer an alibi. Uh, she said Jason answered the phone and that they had talked for about five minutes. Eccles, quote, said him and Jason were going to go somewhere. Him and Jason were going to go somewhere and that he um, wanted me to call him later at his house around 8. And I said, okay. Now, she didn't catch Eccles at home until close to 9.30, according to her statements. And perhaps it was later than that. She didn't mention subsequent phone calls to Baldwin or further phone conversations with Baldwin. So, does she offer an alibi to Baldwin? Of course not. Uh, Brian Ridge, detective, asked her, after that last call and you talked to Damien, did you ask him where he had been that evening? Jennifer said, I said, where did you and Jason go? And he said, uh, his mom took us somewhere. He didn't really say where because, like, Ridge asked, whose mom took him somewhere? Jennifer said, Jason's. Ridge says, Jason's mom had taken Jason and Damien somewhere? <coughs> yeah, I'm coughing. Thought I thought I had that problem solved for the day. Ridge didn't get an answer. Uh, Jason's mother was at work that evening. Excuse me for a second. Jennifer did not remember talking to Heather that evening or ever talking to Heather in a three-way call, as Heather had claimed. She said, quote, 
Heather and Holly never got along, unquote, for a typical teenage reason, quote, because Heather likes Jason, but Jason had liked Holly, but Holly was going out with somebody else. In her June 6, 2004 statement, Jennifer's memory had improved, as unlikely as that seems. Uh, quote, Damien told me that he and Jason were going to Jason's uncle's house. He told me to call him later on at night. I believe he told me he thought he would be home at around 9 p.m. She called about 9 and Eccles wasn't home, but she reached him later. She didn't mention talking to Baldwin that evening in that statement. In a Rule 37 hearing on August 14, 2009, Rule 37 hearing is a hearing to determine if you had an inadequate defense um, in terms of lawyering. Uh, Bearden, who was then 29 and a paralegal with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, and she's since gone on to become an attorney, uh, repeated that she had spoken to Jason about 4.30 or 5 p.m. and later spoke to Eccles, but not Baldwin, at about 9.20 after one call that got a busy signal and another in which Eccles' grandmother informed her that Eccles was not at home. <laughs> now, she saying she talked to... she. Did end up talking to Eccles at 9.20, but she called the house earlier as he had instructed and got a busy signal once, which offers no alibi. And then she gets Eccles' grandmother on the phone, and she says, uh, Damien's not here. So Damien's claiming he was at home talking uh, on the phone to girls all evening is refuted by this statement from Jennifer Bearden, who was the primary girl he was talking to. Uh, Baldwin's, uh, Eccles' grandmother had died bef between the time of the killings, the time he went on trial. There is no statement from her, so we can't determine uh, what her input would have been on this. Uh, None of Jennifer's statements over many years, as we can see, offered an alibi to Eccles or Baldwin for the crucial 6 to 8 p.m. time period. And in fact, they didn't offer, she didn't offer, uh, it goes later than that, at least nine. And actually to Baldwin, not at all. Um, Ridge interviewed Holly George, uh, who was a 13-year-old Bartlett, Tennessee, 8th grader on September 10th, she told him that she had talked with Eccles at about 3.30 p.m. on the day of the killings. Uh, Holly had tried to call Baldwin shortly after she talked to Eccles, and she said no one answered. She said she did not talk with Heather that day. She did not mention later calls to Baldwin or conversations with him. And that was on September 10th, 1993. Now, Many years later, Holly George Thorpe stated in an affidavit on April 18th, 2008, that she had a different story. She contradicted her 1993 story by saying she talked with Eccles and Baldwin that night, but she had no specifics and had nothing of value to offer as an alibi.
Baldwin got little help with an alibi from other acquaintances and relatives. Statements from a 15-year-old friend, Garrett Schwarting, who's another, uh, who's another notorious fabricator, uh, seemed at first to offer an alibi to Baldwin, but ultimately lost all credibility. Baldwin admitted being heavily influenced by Matt Baldwin, Jason's younger brother, to somehow help out Jason. So, what did Jason's streetwise little brother recall about the evening? The ninth grader testified on, must have been a little older than 10 or 11, he must have been 12 or 13, testified on September 23, 1993, in a deposition that his parents separated in April, about a month before the killings, and that stepfather Terry Grinnell had returned in the middle of May. On May 5th, said Matt, Terry Grinnell was living in his mother's house, and Gail Grinnell, his mother, was working at Custom Trucking Incorporated. <coughs> She left for work at 2.30 in the afternoon, worked until 11, and got home about 11.20. Uh, he said he and Jason got home from school together about 3.40 that afternoon. Little brother Terry Ray Grinnell, who was 10, and Dink, whom he described as one of my mother's friends, were home at that time. Dennis Dink Dent, who was his mother's soon-to-be erstwhile boyfriend, had an extensive criminal record of larceny, burglary, DWI, and carrying a prohibited weapon in Tennessee. Dent was eventually questioned by detectives On June 7, 1994, while being held at the Maricopa County Jail in Phoenix, Arizona, <coughs> I may have to stop after this, after being picked up on an NCIC warrant out of Memphis, Matthew testified that on May 5th, I was up at Walmart. I left about 20 minutes after my brother did, and I went up there. I get When he says he left after his brother did, he's talking about to cut the grass, which would have been you know, 4.35, 5.15, it's not really clear, but it would have been somewhere around in the range of 5, 5 p.m. And I went up there, then I came home. Matthew said Ken Watkins came over before Jason left, and John Fogelman asked, how about Damien and Dominique? Did they come over? Matthew answered, I don't know. I think they did over at my uncle's house. They did when my brother was cutting his yard. Fogelman says, all right, I'm talking about at your trailer. Matthew, they might have. I don't know for sure. Fogelman, you don't remember? Matthew, no, I was probably in my room. So, you know, so you can get an idea how he would have fared on the stand with these kind of questions and answers. Fogelman, okay, so if Ken said that, that he and Damien and Dominique came over and played video games over there for a little while, you wouldn't dispute that? Matthew says, uh-uh-uh. Matthew said Jason and Ken left unaccompanied by anyone else. Uh, 
Fogelman, all right, do you know why Ken would say that, that Damien and Dominie were there? Matthew, they might have been there after they left the trailer. They might have come up on them. Again, not much help. And again, can you imagine if this was Baldwin's alibi witness? Fogelman then asked, all right, um, about what time was that when you left? You got home about 3.40. Matthew, I probably left around 5 o'clock. Yeah, 5 o'clock. Fogelman, all right, you left. I thought you said you left the trailer about 30 minutes after your brother. Yeah, I did. Fogelman, all right, so, so your brother didn't leave the trailer until about 4.30? Yeah. Fogelman, okay, and when you left, where did you go? Matt, I went to Walmart, played some video game, and then I seen Dink walk in with some, like, yarn and stuff, trying to take it back. But they wouldn't take it back, so he went over to Kroger and bought my mom some flowers. And I followed him over there, seeing what, where he was going, and then I walked back over there and played some more video games, and then I walked home. Now, the statements about Dink... This interaction with Dink matches up with what Dink says. It has a lot of credibility. Fogelman, all right, um, and when you got to Walmart, who was there? Did you see anybody you knew? Matt, uh-uh. Fogelman, was Jason there? Uh-uh. After he followed Dent to Kroger, he returned to Walmart and did not see anyone he knew. Fogelman, okay, uh, about what time did you leave Walmart? Matt, I don't know really. Fogelman, trying again. About how long did you stay at Walmart? Probably about 55 minutes. Fogelman, about an hour, 55 minutes. Uh, is that both times combined or is that the first time or... Matt, yeah, it's about, it's both times I was there. Fogelman, all together in an, about an hour? Yeah. Fogelman, okay, and during that time you never did see Jason? Uh-uh. Fogelman, okay, and then after you stayed there about an hour, where did you go? I went home. Fogelman, all right, did you walk home by yourself? Yeah. Fogelman, how did you get home? What? Which way did you walk? Man, Matt answered, I walked up the wing door out in front of Walmart. You go up the big hill and get up on the interstate and then go on around the interstate. Now, according to Jason, not Matt, walking time from Lakeshore to Walmart was 10 to 15 minutes. <coughs> he testified in 2008. It might have been 15 minutes. I mean, for some reason, I was thinking maybe it was 15 minutes. I know it didn't take long. It might have been 25 minutes or 25. I had not never really timed it. Uh, Ballin's later defense team cited the distances as a problem for the prosecution. Uh, it's unclear how a walk of 30 to 40 minutes home from the Devil's Den would pose a problem for the prosecution. In other words, if it takes you, say, 20 minutes to get to and you wouldn't go directly there, but if it takes you 20 minutes, which is a, it wouldn't take that long, probably. Let's say it takes 20 minutes to walk from Walmart, where the Walmart was, to where Robin Hood Hills was. Both those places aren't there anymore in a meaningful sense, but yeah. 
let's say you that's it take you 20 minutes to go that distance and it takes you 10 15 20 25 however many minutes it takes you 30 minutes 40 minutes 45 minutes wouldn't be more than that based on what they're saying how that posed a problem for the prosecution i don't know but you know baldwin's defense team was flailing around for anything uh, now, Eccles repeatedly claimed he rarely spent time in West Memphis because it was far from where he lived. Of course, his family lived in West Memphis, so West Memphis was where he lived. The murder site was roughly halfway between the Eccles home in Broadway Trailer Park and Lakeshore, and that route across that uh, pipe bridge is the only pedestrian shortcut that exists between those two sites, between Lakeshore and Broadway. Any other route you take is going to take much longer on foot because you have to get around. You can't just cross the bayou anywhere. You have to have a place to cross the bayou. Otherwise, you're stuck walking down 7th Street and coming down, going down Missouri Avenue and going down, uh, going down to Ingram Boulevard and going, da go going down. All those are viable routes, but to get there takes much longer than the relatively direct route going through uh, Robin Hood Hills. Uh, I want to say that Eccles and his friends routinely made the walk across the interstate from Lakeshore to Walmart and they also went to the skating rink and the softball field, which were on the other side of the interstate over there. Uh, it was a little more than a mile east from those sites to the Blue Beacon, which was next to the murder site. Eccles told Larry King on Larry King's nighttime CNN show in 2007, I didn't actually live in West Memphis. I lived in a small town right outside of West Memphis called Marion. So it was within, I don't know, I'd say about a 10 to 15 mile area. Now, a, a circle with a radius of 10 to 15 miles from the Lakeshore, Walmart, Blue Beacon area would easily encompass the Marion West Memphis area and well beyond, all the way to Memphis. Based on Eccles' comments, someone unfamiliar with the area might conclude that Marion and West Memphis were as much as 15 miles apart. Larry King, as would be expected, since he always did minimal uh, preparation for these shows, did not challenge this. In fact, he didn't, didn't seem to really know much of anything about the case except maybe Eccles' name. Uh, following an interview with Eccles in 2010, the Jonesboro Sun newspaper stated that Eccles and Baldwin live more than six miles from the crime scene. I don't know where I don't know where he came up with that figure. I know the reporter, and I don't know him, but I know of him. We have a mutual, very good mutual friend, um, and he's a good reporter from what I know. But I don't know where he came up with that ridiculous figure. But it's not six miles. Uh, Eccles has claimed that at the time. Of the killings, he lived in Marion, which is not really true either. Lakeshore, where, which is where he often spent the night with either 
Baldwin or Dominique is actually in Crittenden County proper. <coughs> it's between Marion and West Memphis, but it's in the Marion School District. And much of the retail area around the Western Service Drive in West Memphis that he frequented was also in the Marion School District, which gives you an idea of the proximity of Marion and West Memphis. They're not far apart. Eccles' home address was in West Memphis. He spent a lot of time in the little area where the trailer parks are located between the, the two towns. where, And those city limits do meet at other points. Uh, Eccles testified in 1994 that he frequently walked around West Memphis by foot, it was about two and a half miles from his parents' trailer on South Grove Drive to the murder site and a little over two miles from the murder site to Lakeshore. The travel distance by vehicle is further than on foot because of where Lakeshore is located near the intersection of two interstates, requiring navigating a network of service roads and exits to get from Lakeshore to Kroger or to get to the crime scene or get to Broadway Trailer Park. The total distance by auto from the Eccles trailer to the Baldwin trailer was slightly less than five miles. In other words, it's you can see that he's saving the better part of a mile's distance if he's if he was traveling a route that you would take by car. Uh, but he could go as, as the crow flies, so to speak, which I'm sure he would love a reference to the crow. But uh, uh, if, if you go by as crow flies, you can cut it down to something like four miles. If not, you're stuck driving five miles or so. You know, In an affidavit in 2008, Matt Baldwin explains some of the distances involved. It used to take us about 20 minutes or so to walk from the trailer park across the freeway to West Memphis where the big stores like Walmart were. It took another 15 or 20 minutes to go downtown to where our Uncle Hubert lived. Hubert Bartouche lived, which is the uncle that Jason's cutting the grass for. It would have taken, as far as I recall, about 15 to 20 minutes to get to Robin Hood Hills from Lakeshore Trailer Park. Let me repeat that. This is Matthew Baldwin. It would have taken, as far as I recall, about 25 to 30 minutes to get to Robin Hood Hills from Lakeshore Trailer Park. It goes on to say it was right next to a highway. It was not near our home. Well, it wasn't near the home, but it, as he also says, it's not that far away. The Bartouche home was not downtown, though it was about halfway between the old commercial strip on Broadway and the newer retail nexus along the service road. It was near the park there. I spent a lot of time in that park, and I can't think of the name off the top of my head right now. Uh, but that park's located just off Missouri. Uh, Gail Grinnell tested testified in 2008 that it was a long walk to West Memphis from our home. Uh, not very specific, and as it's clear here, her sons regularly made this so-called long walk. 
Now, in his 1993 interview with Fogelman, Matthew said that after he returned home on May 5th, I went in there and played some Super Nintendo, and then I walked in my room and laid down. Fogelman, okay, did you watch any TV or anything that you remember? Matthew, yeah, I believe so. I know I walked in my room, I was sitting there, and then Jason came in. Fogelman, okay, do you know what about what time it was when he came in? Matthew, around 7, 7.30. Fogelman, all right, um, was anybody with him? Yeah, Ken, which would be Ken Watkins. Fogelman, do you remember Damien being there? Matthew answered, uh-uh. Jason told me that Damien was over there at Uncle's with him. And then he called his mom or something, and his mom came and got him. Fogelman, do you know why Ken would say Damien was there? Uh-uh. I don't know whether he was there or not. I know Ken was, though. Fogelman, you don't know whether Damien was there or not? Uh-uh. Do you see what the problem would be with him as a alibi witness? Or the problems, I should say. And at this point, Matthew began dropping uh, his voice. You know, the tone, the volume, which didn't lend credibility to his statements. Fogelman tells him, okay, I need you to speak up. The tape recorder can't pick up. I don't know if Damien or Dominie was there or not. Fogelman, you don't remember? Uh-uh. Fogelman, were you in the room some of the time? Yeah. Fogelman, all right, did you see Damien at all that day? No. Fogelman, okay, you need to speak up just a little bit. The tape recorder was not picking up answers consistently. Fogelman, do you remember Ken being there? Yeah. Fogelman, okay, when uh, when uh, Ken was there, do you know what time Ken left? Matthew, about nine. He left at nine. Uh, first, uh, they left him and Ken, Jason and Ken, go to Adam's house. He explained they visited a friend, Adams Phillips, who lived in the trailer park. Matthew said around 8, 8, around 8.20 or 8.30, they went over there and uh, Jason brought a tape from him for $4 and he came home and showed me the tape and then he went in his room and then I heard Ken say something he had to be home at nine to go wash dishes or something. Fogelman, all right, do you remember around this time uh, taking a knife and a mountain climbing a pick to somebody's house? Now, I might mention in terms of a mountain climbing pick, there, there are mountains in Arkansas but the Arkansas Delta is exceptionally flat. It has virtually no, great parts of it have virtually no elevation whatsoever, and there certainly are no mountains around. Uh, Matthew, that was, that was about a week after that. I took that over to uh, Ken's and Billy Newell's house because uh, Jason told me to, because they were trying to blame him for using it or something. They were trying to blame him for using it or something. Huh. Fogelman, why didn't Jason take it back? Matthew, I don't know. Fogelman, he told you. Matthew, he said he couldn't go nowhere because he was babysitting for my mom. 
he was babysitting me and my little brother. Now, he's supposed to be babysitting Matthew, but instead he sends him with a couple of weapons over to a friend's house. But he can't leave the house because he's babysitting. Gail Grinnell claimed she did not allow her boys to have knives. She did not have a clear conception of her son's activities and interests. Fogelman, all right, well, where was Dink? Matthew, I don't know. Oh, yeah, my mom made him leave or something about a week or two after that, and then he came back, and then he came back a couple of days after. Jason watched us for a couple of days. The stress in this chaotic household and the unwanted responsibility of being the man of the house as well as after-school babysitter uh, very likely contributed to the fury that Jason displayed in his savage attack on the little boys. The Eccles household was in similar disarray with the on-again, off-again relationship of Eccles' parents. Having gone through a breakup, the night before the killings, if some of the many contradictory statements of Pam Eccles can be believed. So you've got at least two households that are in total disarray. And of course, Jesse Miskelly's household just stayed that way. Probably more consistent in that they were just, you know, his father went to work and he drank a lot. And his, uh, his father's girlfriend drank a lot. And there was a lot, it was a rough household. I'm not saying it was abusive. It's not really clear it would be abuse by a lot of standards. But apparently there was a lot of hitting and punching each other and so forth it was something to be considered to be just part of the way things were done. Matthew stated he did not see Eccles on May 5th though admitting his brother and Eccles run around a lot together about every day. He didn't recall any phone calls for Jason that night. Asked about May 6th, Matthew said, the day after that, I saw, I know I saw Damien was over there that night because I think Jesse came over that night. Jesse and some girl were in a truck. Some girl in a truck were trying to get Damien to come over there. But Jason, but Damien didn't want to come over there. She didn't come in. She stayed in the truck. And then Jesse left in the truck, and Damien stayed over my house. Uh, this was an apparent reference to Vicki Hutchison and her attempts to get to know Eccles. Though it's unlikely this occurred on May 6th, and it doesn't really speak to the idea that Damien and Jason weren't having anything to do with Jesse Muskelly Jr. around this time. Uh, Damien had a similar story about, Dominique had a similar story about a visit from Jesse. Uh, Matt, Dominique, Jason, Damien, Heather, and even the phone call girls all knew Jesse. Matt wasn't sure if Eccles spent the night at the Baldwin home May 6th, because he'd always be spending, spending the night sometimes, but most of the time his mom won't let him because she makes him come home about 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock. She brings him over to our house and comes and picks him up. Vogelman, okay, do you know why your mom would have accused your dad of turning Jason in for the reward money? Uh, Gail Grinnell had angrily j jumped on, not figure, figuratively jumped on Terry Grinnell when the police 
were searching their home on June 3rd during the arrest. Uh, Matt, regarding this, said, uh-uh. Fogelman, okay, has Jason told you anything about this? Uh-uh. Fogelman, have you talked to him about it? There's no silence. Fogelman, you need to answer out loud. No, no. Fogelman, so he hasn't told you anything about it? Uh-uh. In an affidavit on May 13th, 2008, uh, Matthew Baldwin stood by his account from 1993 and uh, reminded of the rule at the Rule 37 hearings of Matt's proffered alibi. Paul Ford, the defense attorney, testified, I can only say I concluded from my efforts that I did not successfully find successfully what I was looking for <coughs> for the purposes of establishing an alibi that I felt would not unravel on me, which I believe is more detrimental than not presenting one at all. And at that point, we... Still have a long way to go, but I think I've talked enough. I'm coughing some, which I thought my throat was in better shape today. Uh, we're going to next be talking about what Jason's mother and stepfather had to say to Detective Ridge and then talk to Dink Dent. We're not going to talk to Dink Dent, but we'll go over what Dink Dent told police, more about what Domini told police, etc., etc., so this is, as you can see, it's quite involved and some uh, just trying to cover all the bases. I mean, if there's an alibi there, uh, I'm not seeing it. I don't think anybody else would either, except Jason, who sees what he wants to see. And with that, I'm through. Uh, I wish y'all well. I'll say goodbye for now. As soon as I can get there, I will turn this off.